This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I was sent this script and I turned it down. I was pretty hot. And so uh, my wife, Carol, my second wife, and I were uh, in our car driving to our house in Abagansett at the end of Long Island. Uh, and uh, she said, what about that script you read today? I said, I had to turn it down. He said, why? I said, well, I don't know. I just uh, didn't think it was very good. He said, what was it about? Well, I started to tell her what it was about. And I stopped. <laughs> and she said, Hal. I said, yeah, I'm just thinking, this is not so bad, is it? <laughs> She'd also said, who's, who's the other guy? I said, Marty Sheen. And she said, Hal Holbrook. <laughs> when we get to our house, I want you to get on the phone and call your agent in California and pray to God he hasn't turned the job over to somebody else. Hi, this is George Chikuris. And you're listening to TV Confidential. Ed Robertson welcoming you to TV Confidential, radio talk show about television that will welcome back Ruta Lee in our second hour. Ruta Lee, entertainment legend. We will give away an autograph edition of Ruta's memoir, Consider Your Ass Kiss. Plus, Ruta will share a few more memories of her career in movies, television, and the stage. Ruta Lee will join us in our second hour. Please stay tuned for that. Later on this hour, we will welcome back James Moses Black. James Moses Black, one of the ensemble cast members of NBC's This Is Us. James has a new series on Amazon Prime that is now out. We'll tell you about that. He also recently worked with Harvey Keitel in the biopic Lansky, plus he has a movie coming out later this year with Vince Vaughn and Kristen Bell. James Moses Black will join us later on in this hour. We hope you stay tuned for that as well. In the meantime, Tony Figueroa and Donna Allen are with us as we begin the program with Remembrance of Hal Holbrook. Hal Holbrook, the celebrated actor, arguably best known for playing American Man of Letters Mark Twain for an amazing 63 years, but who also left his mark in movies and on television, most notably as Deep Throat in All the President's Men, Abraham Lincoln and Sandbird's Lincoln, the Emmy Award-winning series The Senator, and such acclaim made for TV movies as That Certain Summer. Hal Holbrook passed away earlier this year at the age of 95. Our friend Mark Dwidziak knew Hal Holbrook for 35 years. He's here to share a few memories of his friend Hal Holbrook as part of our program tonight. Mark Dewitziak, of course, was the television critic for the Cleveland Plain Dealer for more than 30 years. He's also written or edited more than 20 books on American popular culture. We began our conversation by asking Mark, how did you first meet him? I met Hal at a studio, a network uh, event in around 1985. He was connected with a TV production, and they, they were having a evening event at a ballroom, a hotel ballroom, and I knew he was going to be there. So I first encountered uh, Hal Holbrook, uh, not really in 1985, but really in 1967. He just didn't know we were in, being encountered, that, and that was the year that CBS aired the 90-minute version of Mark Twain Tonight, and I was uh, 10 years old. <laughs> and I was just absolutely knocked out. At 10 years old, there was a lot of it I didn't understand. 
All I actually knew that this was Mark Twain. This was, it wasn't Hal, I didn't know who Hal Holbrook was. This was Mark Twain, and he was on television. And he was alive, and he was funny, and he was wickedly funny. And, you know, this really probably lit the spark of my interest in Mark Twain. That interest deepened in high school when I really started obsessively reading Mark Twain. And then in 1975, I was attending George Washington University, uh, which was only a few blocks away from the Kennedy Center. And Hal brought his one-man show to the Kennedy Center, and you could get student tickets. It meant you were sitting up with the angels, you know, uh, in the nosebleed territory. But, you know, who cared? I was in the same room as Hal Holbrook, and he was doing his Mark Twain show. So I got to see it in 1975 for the first time. And if watching the CBS special in 1967 lit the spark, that brushed that spark into a, into a prairie fire. So I wanted to be able to tell him all this. You know, 10 years later now, I'm, I'm, I am in the same ballroom with Hal Holbrook, and I have a chance to talk to him. Uh, and I, I walked into the ballroom, and I, I, I scoped it out, and I spotted him in one little corner of the, the ballroom, and another reporter was talking to him, was interviewing him. So I moved into what we would call the on-deck position, which is you sort of stand there with your tape recorder and your notebook, sort of saying, I'm next. When you're done, I'm next. So this reporter wrapped it up, and I stepped in. And all I really wanted to do was not sound like a blithering idiot. All I really wanted to do was sound coherent and not sound like the biggest geeky fanboy on the planet. And so I introduced myself, and I, I managed to have my own voice a little bit, and we talked, and we soon, very quickly, bonded, and we bonded over Mark Twain. It was kind of a where two or more are gathered uh, type of discussion. We grew in our enthusiasm of Twain, and we became like two true believers, sharing the shared passion and Finally, he got quiet. He got, he got very, very, suddenly got very quiet, and he looked down. He had a drink in his hand. He looked down at the drink, and he looked up at me on, uh, from cocking an eyebrow, which is a look I would get very, very familiar with over the years. And he said very quietly, you do understand I don't think I'm Mark Twain, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, I had acted enough to know. Oh, wow that there's a thing called getting lost in the part, that if an actor gets lost in the part, you can't play the part anymore. When, when an actor crosses a line and the actor playing Lincoln thinks he's Lincoln, he can't play Lincoln anymore. He's done. So, you know, I said to him, well, of course, you know, you couldn't be brilliant playing Mark Twain if you actually thought that. And I said, no, by the way, you know, I'm not a Hal Holbrook fan just because of Mark Twain tonight. And now I start to rattle off his credits. I say, like, you know, that certain summer, the senator, you know, all the president's men, <laughs> just start rattling off everything that I've seen him in and loved him in. And you could just see him warming up. And, you know, he put his, his hand on my shoulder as if to say, you get it, don't you? You really do understand. And that was just the beginning. That was the Casablanca moment. That was the end of Casablanca. It was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And oh. uh, so it just grew from there. It just absolutely grew from there. You know, at that point, I'd been playing Mark Twain on stage since 1979. So I'd been playing Mark Twain for about six years, and which is something I did not share with him at that point, because upon meeting Picasso, you don't offer to show Picasso your etchings. Yeah. You know, it just was like, no, <laughs> I think I'll keep this to myself for a while. 
Oh, I play Mark Twain, too. Are you any good? <laughs> uh, no, I wasn't going to go there. Uh, so I kept that one little bit to myself. But after a while, I revealed it, you know. And, you know, one of the great gifts Hal Holbrook ever gave me, certainly over the years, was, you know, he treated me like a big shot. He would ask me over lunch or over dinner, he would ask about how I played Mark Twain. That's treating somebody like a big shot. Mark Dwidziak is with us, along with Tony Figueroa and Donna Allen. Mark is sharing a few memories of his dear friend, Hal Holbrook. Hal Holbrook, the legendary actor who passed away earlier this year at the age of 95. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. I got a small sense of how close friends you and Holbrook were, Mark, about 10 years ago. Uh, you came out here, you did a talk at UCLA about your book on Jim Tully. That's right. And I was in the audience that night, and then towards the front of the auditorium, I noticed this very distinguished man with white, bushy hair. And then at one point, you opened the floor for question and answers, and this distinguished man with white, bushy hair stood up and started asking you questions. And then from the profile, I realized... Hey, man, that's Hal Holbrook. And I thought that was cool that Hal Holbrook went to your talk that night. Well, yeah, and, and actually it wasn't the first time. In 2009, see, I always wanted to write the book on Hal's one-man show, and Hal was always working on his memoirs. You know, he would sort of gently push me off when every time I would ask. I'd say, well, I want to see how I'm going to use the, the stories. And, uh, you know, uh, so, you know, he, he, he would talk to me endlessly. I have hours and hours of taped conversation with him about playing Twain and the one-man show and his career. But, you know, he never would, you know, commit to that, you know. And I was getting a little tired of it, basically because I wanted to be able to tell the world, in some sense, what this guy had done, which, you know, I, which I told him. You should let me do this because you can't say, oh, look at the great things I did. You know, it takes somebody else to do that. You should let me do that. And, you know, Hal always had a problem with that. He was very hard on himself as a, as a, as a, as a person. Uh, something he shared with Twain, actually. But um, it, it, around 2000, every four years, there is a major Mark Twain conference, the quadrennial conference that all the great Twain scholars from all around the world gather in Elmira, New York, at the Center for Mark Twain Studies, which is where Twain spent his summers. And uh, they, they give papers. It's four days of basically Mark Twain's summer camp. Every, you give papers. There are presentations of all sorts. And I've been giving a, a paper at the, you know, I've been attending that conference since 1987, and I give a paper every four years on a different subject. So in 2009, I decided the subject was going to be Hal Holbrook. And I told him, Look, I won't do this if you say I can't or you feel uncomfortable with it. But I would like to do a paper for the next Mark Twain conference on the importance and the impact of your show. I want to recognize it in that setting. And he sort of nodded his head a couple of times and then said, Tell you what, you write that paper and I'll come listen to you deliver it. And he did. In 2009, he showed up at the conference. You know, 
he, he walks into that, that auditorium and takes his seat in the front row, you know, and I looked at the audience and said, I, I think I can be excused from show and tell for the rest of my natural life because look what I brought, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was a wonderful moment because I had interviewed all of these great Mark Twain scholars for the paper and other actors like Martin Sheen and Mandy Patinkin, uh, who had been influenced, and people like Ken Burns, uh, and they just all talked about the importance and the influence of the show. So it was a wonderful way to sort of recognize that. And the conferences always end. Every four years, the conferences end up at Quarry Farm, which is where Twain, which is his sister-in-law's farm. And they spent their summers. The Clemens family lived in Hartford, but they would pack up, and they would go to Elmira, New York, every summer and spend the entire summers there. And this is where Twain got his writing done. His sister-in-law, Susan Crane, who just loved him, and they were devoted to each other, his sister-in-law built him an octagonal study and had it set up on a bluff right above the house where he could go and be isolated. And the, and the study was built along the pattern of the pilot's house on, on the Mississippi Riverboat. It had a desk and a sofa and he could open the windows, and he had a great view of the Shimung River from up there. And that's where Huckleberry Finn was written. That's where Life on the Mississippi was written. That's where The Adventures of Tom Sawyer were written. All the great books were written in that study. He got very little writing done in Hartford. Hartford was social. They were entertaining a lot. But he was kind of isolated up on that hill in Quarry Farm. So every four years, the conferences end with a picnic up at Quarry Farm. And in 1997, eight Mark Twain scholars, who were also cigar smokers, conspired to sneak off at the end of the conference and go up to the site of the study, which is, you know, now a lot of overgrowth. They moved the study down to the campus uh, of Elmira College so, you can, so people could visit it and see the study. But the, the supporting stones of, of the octagonal study are still up there at that clearing. And you can climb up there. Um, the steps that Twain used to get up there are still there. So we decided that we should have our little ceremony to ourselves. So the eight of us, and we, we, we tried, we, we really struggled to find eight cigar smokers, but we finally found eight. And we snuck off in the dark. And lucky we didn't break our full necks doing this. But we, we, we snuck off, and then we each took a corner of where the octagonal study was. And at the same time, we lit our cigars. And we let the smoke waft up into the summer night against the stars. And as the smoke ascended and reached the very pinnacle of the trees that arced overhead, a lightning bolt shot through the sky. And the eight of us just looked with our jaws dropping. And... Joe McCullough from the University of Nevada in Las Vegas looked at me and said, well, you have just got to figure we have more fun than the Kafka Society. <laughs> so we ambled our way back down, and very quickly, word of this spread. I, mean, I should also point it out that John, John Bird from North Carolina, Winthrop University, had brought his mandolin. He was an excellent bluegrass mandolin picker. So we also indulged in a couple of uh, spirituals. 
was a couple of Twain's favorite spirituals. So it was a cigar and song ceremony. And we thought this was only going to be known, be known by the eight of us. But by the time we reached the bottom of the hill, word started to spread that we had done this. And in fact, we had heard that, you know, that actually the, the college was not happy with us, that you know, one of us had gotten hurt. Oh, how, do you do, how could you do this? You know. But 40 years later, four years later, which is, we did this in 97, 2001, we show up and everybody's running up to us. Are you going to do the cigar thing again? Are you doing the ceremony again? And all of a sudden, everybody wants to be part of it. So eight people went up in 97, about 40 people went up in 2001. Four years later, everybody goes up. Men, women, dogs, everybody smoking cigars up there and singing. So four years later, Hal Holbrook goes up with us. And lights, gets a cigar, smokes a cigar with us, sings the spirituals with us, and tells us stories about Mark Twain and his career. In the dark, lit only by the ends of cigar it was an amazing moment. <laughs> and if he hadn't come listen to the paper, if he hadn't promised that he wouldn't have had this moment. Wow. But he had this incredible moment where all of these Mark Twain scholars got to tell him how much he meant and how important he was. And, you know, I've always kind of figured that my friendship with Hal Holbrook was always an endless succession of the gifts he gave me. And this was a one brief moment where I could give him a gift. I could give him something back. And not only to him, but also all the Mark Twain scholars who were there who got the chance to say, I wouldn't be a Mark Twain scholar if it wasn't for you. I wouldn't have done this if it hadn't been for what you did for Mark Twain. So, yeah, you know, I, I, I've got to say, it still seems very fresh. It still seems kind of unreal to me that... Uh, there's not going to be another conversation. I, I, I know Hal was 95. I mean, I, I get it. Um, I understand that intellectually. But Mark Twain once said, I'm old. I recognize it, but I don't realize it. And that line to me has always typified Hal Holbrook. Hal was like youth personified, which is somewhat ironic because youth was... Mark Twain's wife's nickname for him because she thought he embodied youth. Mm. And I always thought that Hal Holbrook, even going into his 80s, was one of the most youthful people I ever met. He had an incredible energy. Um, and even in his 80s, when he was performing, I mean, can you imagine doing a one-man show in your 80s? Just, you can imagine just standing on your feet for two hours in front of an audience under hot lights for two hours, but then to be still doing a show to the level of quality that yeah. he was doing it. It was, it was staggering. You know, I mean, when Hal was in his mid-80s, he fell. He fell when he was, uh, he was at an airport, and he was in front of an escalator, and he kind of realized he was in front of the wrong escalator, so he made a quick turn, and he fell. He went down, and he fractured his hip. Now... <clears throat> For a lot of people at 80s, in their mid-80s, when you fracture hip, it's kind of the beginning of the end. Mm -hmm. And I was worried. I mean, i got to tell you, I was thinking, uh-oh. So I called um, his assistant, uh, Joyce Cohen. And, and Joyce, one of the most wonderful, beautiful people on the planet, took care of Hal 
actually she was Dixie's assistant too, Dixie Carter. So just you know, she's just wonderful person. And I so I called Joyce and said, "What is he going to be okay?" And Joyce said, "You don't really think that a little thing like a fractured hip is going to slow him down, do you?" And you know, just a few weeks later. He was standing on stage for two hours with the aid of a brace that the audience could not see doing the show. Wow. That was Hal Holbrook. That, <laughs> that's who he was. A little thing like a fractured hip was not going to slow him down. Again, I, I'm just amazing. You know, uh, and it reached a point, you know, because I started playing Mark Twain when I was 22 years old, 1979. And when I was playing Mark Twain, Back then, it took me two hours in makeup to effectively look like Mark Twain at 70. And uh, it was quite a process. I did the whole Lon Chaney thing in front of the makeup mirror where, you know, I would spend a lot of time with the makeup box and I would, you know, work and work at it to get the age lines right and the color right and, the, and, and things. And, you know, by the time I was done, it was a pretty good likeness to Mark Twain. With each passing year, that makeup process got shorter. <laughs> Until it reached the point where, um, you know, my hair had gone white. You know, my hair is, is, is now white. And I grew a mustache, and the mustache went white. And I started to realize that at 22, I was doing makeup by prophecy. I was showing myself what I was going to look like when I was 64. Yeah. And, you know, didn't know it. You know, I thought, oh, I need all this makeup to look like Mark Twain. But in truth, nature has shortened my makeup process a lot. That still, still takes some. I still do some age stuff. I yeah. still, it's not quite put on the white suit, grab the cigar, and go. It has been reduced quite a bit. So, you know, uh, when it had reached that point, Hal and I had gone to dinner. We were at a steakhouse in Cleveland. And it was the night before he was going to perform at the Palace Theater. And because he never, he wouldn't go to dinner. Uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't see him on day of performance because Hal had a very strict regimen on day of performance. And he only had a, a very light meal. He'd have soup or something like that. He, he'd have a, he'd see you the night before or the night of or after the show. So, you know, we, we went to dinner the night before. And uh, I said, listen, you will always be the gold standard. There's nobody who is ever going to touch you as Mark Twain. You know, nobody ever can touch you as Mark Twain. But there is now, you know, uh, one way I can beat you. And he sort of arched that eyebrow again. He said, yeah, what's that? I said, well, I can get on stage faster than you can. <laughs> It'll take you two hours to look like Mark Twain, but for me, I'm out there performing while you're still stuck in the dressing room. And he Hal had a laugh that could knock you back two feet. You know, ah! it just, you know, all of a sudden they would just erupt out of him and it would just throw you back. And that's what happened. He, he, he did this, this incredible laugh. And, you know, and I said afterwards, I said, you know, you have to understand that's a small victory, but I'm a small person and I will take my, my, <laughs> my, my, my triumphs where I can. Uh, but, you know, the point still remains. Nobody will ever touch you in this role. But again, it's, it's, it's sort of like a little bit what we were talking about before. I wouldn't want Hal's career defined by the one role. And we'll pick up that thread on the other side of the break. Mark DeWidziak is with us, along with Tony Figueroa and Donna Allen, as we remember the career of award-winning actor Hal Holbrook. We'll take a quick time out. We'll talk some more with Mark. We come back 
on TV Confidential. If you are a fan of character actor Nehemiah Persoff, our friend James Rosen has just published The Many Faces of Nehemiah, Nehemiah Persoff's memoir as an actor on Broadway and on television. The Many Faces of Nehemiah, available classic tvseriesbooks.com, amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. In his memoir, Nehemiah Persoff looks back on his early childhood in Jerusalem, his emigration to America during the Depression, his work as a technician on the New York subway before he became an actor, as well as his remarkable transition to Broadway. The Many Faces of Nehemiah reveals with poignancy and humor Persoff's cultural an ethical clash with Broadway and with Hollywood, and the price he paid in human terms for the success he enjoyed in his career. The Many Faces of Nehemiah by Nehemiah Persoff, available classictvseriesbooks.com, classictvseriesbooks.com, as well as amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.